0: Jesus glory Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Book of First Kings. We have been uh, studying the Book of First Kings on Sunday evenings. And uh, since Pastor Rob was away this morning, um, I thought that uh, I'd uh, continue to preach on this book, Uh, and uh, we come to uh, a section of the account of uh, this book of Solomon's uh, building of the temple, his preparation of the temple, and the ceremony that is... uh, long been awaited for a long been awaited uh, that uh, the Ark of the Covenant would finally come to rest in the temple that Solomon the son of David the promised king who would build the temple and prepare a place the Ark of the Covenant is brought to its resting place in this passage you're going to see a, it's a glorious time in the history of God's people and in some ways it's the apex it's the apex it's the it is the highest point in the history of the old covenant people where God comes down and dwells in a glorious way in this temple that has been prepared by King Solomon and so uh, let us look together at 1st Kings chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion, And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. And then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Please join me in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the account which we have just read of this most glorious occasion when King Solomon and all the priests and the Levites and the congregation gathered all around took part in this great event. And you revealed your glory Oh, Lord, what, amazing, what an amazing thing it is. What is man that you are mindful of him, that you should enter into such a glorious union with a sinful people, that you should dwell in the midst and in the hearts of your very people. O oh Lord, we stand in awe and wonder at this account. Bless it, Father, as we consider it this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you have had the experience at some point or another of having purchased a house, and you know all that goes into that, all of the various steps, when finally the house has been purchased and you've had the closing, you begin to prepare and to make uh, uh, for that great day when you actually begin. You move your bed and all your stuff into it, and you spend your first night in your new home. What a grateful th- What a great thing that is um, for those who are able to experience it. In many ways, if we think about God's dealings with mankind, it is the the, uh, unbelievable truth. It is the unfathomable truth that God, from the beginning of his dealings with Adam and Eve in the garden, all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation, that God has been mindful of men and women whom he created in his image and has desired to live in their midst and to have them close by. And in a marvelous and wonderful way, we might say that the fulfillment of God's dealings with us as his redeemed people, as his covenant community, comes in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when once and for all, by his shed blood, our sin is removed. Our guilt is taken away. And based upon that new standing, the Holy Spirit is poured out and God takes his residence in you. Now that is an amazing thing, that you who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, that God dwells with you and in you by means of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus Christ invites us into that kind of a relationship. And If you've ever looked about you and seen the beauty of nature, and especially at this time of year, and you've seen the golden leaves on the trees and the sun shining on them, or you've looked deeply and intently at the flowers growing in your garden, or you've looked at a sunrise or a sunset and seen the rays of the sun light up the sky, you have seen that which is full of beauty and glory. And God has revealed his glory all around us. Why? Because he wants us to have a taste of what it is that he should dwell so richly in us that we should know his glory. If you think about the days in which we live, we live in a days of crisis, of meaning, a crisis in which men and women and boys and girls, especially the young are having such difficulty understanding the purpose of why they have been placed here upon planet Earth and what lies ahead of them in the future of their lives. And the total of our lives seems to be spent increasingly in front of screens. And they are a poor substitute. And all that they offer to us are a poor substitute for... That kind of, of life that God has promised us. And what we see here in this, these few verses in First Kings chapter eight, that we have just read, is this amazing occurrence in which the Ark of the Covenant is finally brought to its resting place, and the promise of the Exodus is fulfilled. Because in the exodus from Egypt, God delivered his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And all through their wilderness wanderings, the ark went with them. And then finally, after generations and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, think of it, people holding on to the promise, holding on for the next fulfillment of God's promise to his people, finally here in this passage the Ark of the Covenant that was built at Horeb, at the foot of Mount Sinai, and the tabernacle that was built at that time, that that Ark, representing God's presence with his people, is finally brought by the priests and the Levites to rest below the wings of the cherubim in that most glorious temple that Solomon built. But all of that is merely a type and a foreshadowing of what God has for you who are in Christ Jesus. Because you who are in Christ have the hope, what Paul speaks about so often, the hope of the glory of God. The beauty, the wonder of the of living and seeing and experiencing and having, as it were, the beauty of God, the glory of God, not only as something that is perceived far away and separate and distant from you, but as it were, infusing your whole being. To know that is to know life. And so as we consider this passage, please consider with me a number of things. First, the congregation gathered. Second, The bringing up of the ark. Third, a little bit about the significance of the ark. And fourth, the glory of God revealed. The congregation gathered. The bringing up of the ark. A little bit about the significance of the ark. And finally, the glory of God revealed. The timing of this is in the seventh month. And the seventh month is the time when the Feast of Tabernacles takes place. And the children of Israel uh, annually in the seventh month celebrated their wilderness wanderings, reminding themselves that though now they are living in permanent homes, at one time they wandered in the wilderness under the leadership and the guidance of Moses and Joshua till they came into the promised land and they settled in their permanent homes. And here it is that God has been the whole time the Ark of the Covenant, has been uh, moved about from place to place. In uh, chapter 6, verse 38 of 1 Kings, we learn that the temple was finished in the eighth month. Now, let's see. So they celebrated this in the seventh month, so that means that either they celebrated this before the temple was finished or 11 months later. And I think most people think that this was 11 months later. Think about the preparation that must have gone into preparing for this great event. So 11 months, and the likelihood is that uh, Israel had the knowledge of this. Think of what a great event uh, the building of the temple was and how many of them must have been involved in it. You know, this was not something done in a corner. And many of them were laborers probably that brought about the completion of this. So the call went out for them. The elders were told. Solomon called the elders and the heads of the tribes of Israel and the whole congregation to come 11 months later to celebrate the bringing of the ark to its final resting place I'd like for you to consider the greatness of the fact that all of Israel was called to this great assembly every week all of Israel is called to a great assembly and since all of Israel can't meet in one place because we're spread all over the world We have to separate into separate congregations. And so there's a congregation here, there, this corner, that corner. But the congregation of Israel is called to celebrate the redemptive work of God every week. Now, that is an amazing thing in itself. And it's much more than just merely a a, a polite invitation. It's much more of a summons. Those of you who have been summoned to be witnesses at court or to appear as a juror, know that uh, there's some authority behind that summons, and you bet you best pay attention to it. When I got mine, it went pinned on the wall, where I would walk by it every day and be, so I wouldn't just get lost in my papers, because I didn't want didn't to miss that. We should have the same attitude to the call of God to assemble as a congregation. And don't think that because your congregation is particularly small that that makes any difference at all. Because the congregation is worldwide, it's only a matter of convenience that it's divided into separate groups, meeting in different places. It is the congregation of the Lord. What an amazing thing that is. Every Sunday we're called to appear before God for a great and glorious celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is a Lord's Day, and God summons us on that day to celebrate the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You don't want to be absent. You don't want to miss what goes on when God meets with his people. Worship is first and foremost, not a meeting of God's people with one another, but it is a meeting of God and his people. His people with God. And it is a covenantal gathering. So we see that Solomon calls them and he calls them. And they, uh, uh, they bring the ark to its destination. And so secondly consider the bringing of the ark to its holy place. It was brought with the tent of meeting. Not only the ark but all the other uh, things that went uh, with the tabernacle. All of the furniture, all of the uh, utensils were brought along with the ark. And it's almost as though um, uh, there is a trading of the old for the new. And it makes me think, there's a passage in Paul where he has uh, says something about the resurrection. And he says that we are going to put off this tent for a tent that God has for us. Now think about that. What's happening here in First in, in Corinthians 8 is the exchange of the old tent, this mortal body, for a new tent. For so the body glorified. The temple. an Amazing, amazing building. Typifying, I think, The resurrected glory of God's people It was brought to that holy place. And the priests came after ceremonially cleansing themselves. They had to consecrate themselves. And the reason they did that is because you remember that back when David brought the ark to Jerusalem, he did it with a great deal of enthusiasm, but he didn't pay too much attention to the things that needed to be done. And so he didn't bring the ark up quite as carefully as he should have, and it was on a cart. It was being carried on a cart, and the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out to steady the ark, and you remember what happened. The Lord struck him. So the way they bring the ark up to its resting place is with a great deal of awareness of the holiness of God. And the way we ought always to think about God and always to think about his presence is in this way, that he is holy and righteous and he is to be treated, therefore, according carefully. He is to be worshipped according as he has directed. And so the priests consecrate themselves and they carry the ark, the priests and the Levites, and they bring it up. And uh, it's up. Zion is the city of David. It's lower, just nearby, a little south of the Temple Heights. And you remember that. Uh, so as as they are carrying the ark, they are carrying the ark up, and they are ascending. Worship is very much an ascent. When you think about coming to a place like this where we worship God, we're gathered. Now, I, I don't mean that you ascend physically. I don't know how, what level of sea level your house is in relation to this. That's not what I'm talking about. But when we worship, we ascend. Because God, and the glory of God, is in the heavens. And so the thing that we're doing is raising our hearts into the very presence of God when we gather to worship him. And sacrifices were made. So many sacrifices were made that it's said in the text that they couldn't be counted or numbered. And again, a reminder of the fact that when David, after Uzzah had been struck dead because of touching the ark, uh, David then, every six steps, a sacrifice was made when he finally did bring the ark to Jerusalem. And Solomon knows that God is holy and the people in Jerusalem are sinful and he, he, he has sacrifices that are so many that they can't be numbered. And so the application of that to us is that we ought also to remember that God is holy and we are a sinful people. And the gracious dwelling of God with his people can only take place when atonement for sin has satisfied the divine justice for those people, for those redeemed people. And so this pointed ahead to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in being eternal God and being fully man, takes our sin upon himself and dies in our place on the cross, and his blood, therefore, has infinite value, and as Solomon couldn't count the, the animals that were sacrificed, so it is that the, Christ, the blood of Christ has such an infinite value that it is able to account and to cover your sins and my sins and the sins of all who believe in him throughout all time. Not only some of them, but all of them. The, the lighter sins, the heavier sins, all sin. And so the the, the the amount of blood that was shed points to the infinite value of the blood of Jesus Christ is shed on the cross for us. What a wonderful thing that God says that we can have confidence in His presence. You sometimes uh, lack confidence before God, maybe in your private life, maybe as you consider those moments when it's just you and God. Maybe you're laying on your bed and it's just you and God and, and, and you think about, you want to draw near to God but you think that you shouldn't and that there really is no place for you in the near presence of God that God shouldn't hear one thing that you say. I hope that you felt that at some point. I also hope that you've resolved it because the only way of resolving it is to remember the words of Scripture. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that has been opened to us through the curtain that is through Christ's flesh. Let us draw near then with a true heart and full assurance. If you lack assurance, this is the source of assurance. This is where we find boldness to enter the presence of God. God. It is only because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So I invite you in those moments of doubt, in those moments when you feel that you have no right to be one who calls on God, that you would remember that the blood of Christ is the blood of the God man, the infinite God man, and he paid for every one of your sins, and your guilt is removed because he has satisfied divine justice for you. Now, that takes faith. To believe that, to know that, it takes faith. And if you don't have it, ask God to give it to you, ask Him to give you faith, to trust, and to know. Yes, it is true, not because of anything in me, but Christ has paid for my sins. He is the one who has atoned for me. Yes, I will come to you and pour out my heart and my desires to you. I hope that you will do that. I hope you've felt at times lack of assurance, and I also hope that you've come to be assured not because of anything in you, but because of Christ. So the ark is brought, thirdly, to the, uh, we see that the ark is brought to its resting place under the wings of the cherubim. And they, and they, uh, it, 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 the cherubim are behind the door in the most holy place. And only this place is a place that no one can go. No Israelite is allowed to see this. Only the high priest, and that once a year on the Day of Atonement, enters the most holy place. In verse 7, we're told that the wings are, 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 are overshadow the ark and its poles, and the poles protrude out of the room. We're told that the contents of the ark that were, are there, the two tablets that Moses placed there, the law of God, that where God made a covenant with Israel, those tablets are in the ark. So consider with me this ark, a little bit about it. The ark is a golden box. It's a box. Consider it with the lid off. It holds two tablets of the law. What is the law? It is the revelation of God's instruction to Israel, telling them what their duty is to himself, to God, how, they are t- how the- Israel is to worship the Lord and him alone. Make no graven image, but they are to worship God, and he is to be the object of their devotion and love the law that instructs them about their duty to one another and how they ought to live with respect, always telling the truth, always honoring those in authority that God has given to you. The law is that transcript of God's will. And the breaking of the law in any respect means exile and death. And so on the one hand, the law is a testimony of God's will, It is that sure revelation of God as to how he would have us to be and to the kinds of people he wants us to be conformed to. On the other hand, it reminds us that we are not that and uh, it condemns us. And yet God here dwells with the people who have fallen short, who don't fulfill these commandments. So then consider with me this box with the lid on. What is the lid that goes on top of this box? It is gold, and it is made with one piece with cherubim on either side facing each other, looking down on the top. It is called the mercy seat. Why is it called the mercy seat? The cherubim gaze down on it as though in awe and wonder. The mercy seat is where the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the day of atonement. And in this place, where the cherubim are gazing down on the cover that covers the law of God, this is the revelation of the mystery of how it is that a holy God can dwell with a sinful people. It is the mystery that is fully revealed only in the coming of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is said of Jesus Christ that he is the one who is the propitiation. He is the one, after acknowledging that we all fall short of the glory of God, Paul goes on to say that we're justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God himself, the offended one. God himself, the one who has a right to be wrathful and to destroy the sinful people. God himself, whose justice cries for the punishment of these people, for their exile and for their death. God Himself became man. In Him, that is in Christ Jesus, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. God, and the God by the the God man's blood, the God man's blood was shed on the cross. And it is that blood, not the blood of the animal that the priest brought and sprinkled. It is the blood of the God-man that takes away sin. That's why the cherubim looked down on this lid because here in this place, at the very top of this box, God himself, the offended one, Satisfies his own justice. One theologian, (coughs) William Shedd, put it this way By it, the atonement, God's holy justice and moral anger against sin are conciliated to guilty man. That man's remorseful conscience may, as a consequence of this pacification of the divine essence, Experience the peace that passes all understanding. How is it, how is it that we can have peace only when the holy nature of God is fully satisfied by the shedding of the blood of the God-man? And it is Jesus Christ who is a propitiation, who is presented by God as a propitiation. It is God himself who takes the sins of his people upon himself. That is the amazing thing. And there is a mystery, there is a wonder that for all eternity we will stand in awe of. What is man that you are mindful of us? Why do you want to live in fellowship with us? How do we know? How can we be at peace in the presence of God knowing that we are sinners? It is only through faith in Jesus Christ. It is only through understanding his work for us. And it is no amount of goodness that you can summon up. No amount of church attendance. No amount of holy prayers. No amount of good deeds. No amount of going around doing things for other people. No amount of righteousness on your part can satisfy the holy requirements of God's law. All have sinned and fall short. But it is the... Blood of the one who is God himself and man at the same time. It is his blood that we must trust in. Place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. And God will wash you. He will clean you. He will make you whole again. And God will give you peace in your conscience. And you will have a new basis upon which to live. And the glory of God, we see finally, is revealed. The Levites had brought the, the ark to its resting place. And there's a, there's a part of this that is revealed more fully in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. We read that when the ark was brought to its resting place, that there were, was music and, and there were singers involved. Remember that David had trained some of the priests and Levites to be singers and to be a choir. And so uh, uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 doesn't mention this, but 2 Chronicles chapter 5 does. There's a reason for that. But a great song was raised at this time, and, and the, the singers sang. And it was their duty, we're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 verse 13, it was a duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison and in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for his grace and his mercy. And the song that they sang was this, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they sang that song, just as they were singing those words, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever, the glory of the Lord filled that place. A cloud came and it was so glorious that the priest could not stand and minister because of the glory of God. Now there are many applications of that. One has to do with us singing. What a great joy and a privilege it is for us to join with others in singing and making ourselves heard to the praise of God. Why do we sing? Well, because God in his infinite love has come to us in Christ Jesus and has redeemed us and paid for all of our sins and so it is that it is the praise of God's people in response to that that is said by the psalmist in Psalm 22.3 you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel And so it is that God dwells with his people. Where is God's home? Where is God's dwelling? You might say that God's dwelling was not so much the temple, although the temple was a glorious thing, but it was the people of Israel that surrounded it. It was Israel that was meant to be the living temple of, of a holy God. And that is fulfilled for us in Christ Jesus and at Pentecost where God poured out His Spirit and we are now who know Christ Jesus are the living temple of God. And so it is then that your heart and mine amazingly is the dwelling place of God. God's home that God condescends to make his home with us. We live in a time of great crisis, of meaning and purpose. The remnants of the Judeo-Christian heritage have long been torn from our institutions, educational and governmental institutions. And many of the churches as well no longer preach the word of God And I heard this week of uh, uh, the situation in Canada where physician-assisted suicide is now legal in Canada and on the horizon in our own country. And it is no longer merely the elderly or those suffering extreme pain that are being spoken about, but those who are a great cost to society at large those who experience constant pain and hardships and addictions of various kinds are being told to consider end-of-life clinics. Really. End-of-life clinics. In a day in which people don't know what life is, In a day when suicide is held up as an option that is good. In a day of such crisis and loss of hope, this passage in 1 Kings chapter 8 of God's dwelling telling us of the wonderful news that you have been created by a personal god and god has revealed to you what he requires and he has revealed to you that he has sent a redeemer and salvation in Christ Jesus and the life that he holds out for you and for me is a blessed and glorious life a resurrection life A life that not only begins in the final resurrection, but begins now. God holds out for us that kind of meaning, that kind of purpose, that kind of glory. And this message of the appearing of the glory cloud in the temple of Solomon is the meaning of the glory that has been revealed to you and to me in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. To all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. My dear friends, in a day like the days in which we live, where there is no understanding of what life is or the value of it or the meaning of it or the purpose of it. What is held out before us in the Bible, what is held out before us here in this passage is glorious beyond words. It is the glory of God dwelling with his people. As we are learning from the book of Revelation, It is a glorious thing indeed. May God set our hearts on that glory. And if you are not yet in Christ, I pray that you will consider and set your hearts on Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, I hope that you will be encouraged by this wonderful, glorious thing that God has done for you in Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would know you. We pray that it would not be merely a matter of ritual or going through motions, but that we might truly know you, that we might have fellowship with the living God, that we might know something of your glory that has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. May it be so. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.